morning, church family. It's great to worship the Lord with you. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Wilde, and I'm one of the pastors here. If this happens to be your first Sunday worshiping with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, I want you to know that uh, our church's middle name, Community, um, isn't, uh, it isn't just a middle name. It's also something that we hope that you will find here. And uh, if you've been with us for a couple weeks and you sense that God might be nudging you to sort of transition from being a spectator to someone who's connected in the life of our church, I want to mention that coming up, uh, beginning Sunday, October 23, we're going to start our next Discover Rock class. Uh, this is also the pathway to membership, and you can find more information about this in your bulletin. I hope you'll join us for that. Well, we as a church family have been studying the Gospel of Luke. And for those of you that have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can begin making your way to Luke chapter 11. We're told at the end of chapter 9 that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So as we open to, to chapter 11, we know that Jesus' ministry on this earth is drawing to a close. Time is short. And as the hour for his departure draws near, we can detect a certain urgency, uh, maybe even an intensity, we would say, in his words as this journey to Jerusalem is taking place, where upon his arrival in Jerusalem, he is going to fulfill the mission for which he came into the world on a cross. We're, we're told that he's been teaching to a crowd, and I want you to pick up with me now in chapter 11, verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So this woman in the crowd, she attempts to honor Jesus' mother on the basis of the accomplishments of her son. She isn't literally pronouncing a blessing on body parts. This is a figure of speech. It's her way of referring to Mary. And Jesus transforms this remark into an opportunity to declare where real blessing in life comes from. When he says, blessed rather, he isn't rejecting the previous remark. He isn't contradicting this woman and saying, uh, au contraire, mon frere. You know, like, he isn't saying, forget about my mom. You know, she isn't blessed. Rather, uh, what he is doing here is he's offering a corrective. This is, yes, but rather. The woman's statement is true, it's just not exhaustive. So Mary is blessed not simply because she bore the Son of God, but because she believed God's word. You might recall her response to the angel Gabriel when he appears and tells her that she's going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son. Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. Or do you think when she goes and she visits her relative Elizabeth and you might recall what Elizabeth says about Mary. She said, and blessed is she who what? What's that word? Believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, so in a sense, Jesus responds to this woman by saying, well, what you have said is true as far as it goes, but Mary's blessedness does not 
simply consist in her relationship with me, but in the fact that she heard the word of God and acted upon it. And that's where true blessedness lies. I think this is a truth worth dwelling on. If you're anything like me, sometimes there's just this temptation in life to feel like that if we want to experience the good life, if we want to be blessed, then it's sort of on us to chase this down. We've got to stay alert for opportunities. We've got to strike when the iron's hot. We've got to work hard to get ahead. We see this mentality epitomized in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis with Jacob. We, we see him striving in the first half of his life. He's a guy who felt like he needed to take matters into his own hands if he was going to acquire the kind of life that he wanted for himself. And so we see him hustling. We see him, he hustles his dad. He hustles his brother. He hustles Laban, his future father-in-law, all, all in hopes of wrapping his arms around a bigger blessing. And I'm not saying that, like, hey, you're probably tempted to do something underhanded. I'm, I'm not saying that. But just what I want to acknowledge is that I think sometimes we can feel some of that same pressure, maybe, that, that Jacob felt. That if we want blessing, then that's on us. That's something that we need to go after. We need to stay hungry. We need to keep our ears to the ground for the next opportunity. We, we need to stay attuned to kind of what's happening uh, in the markets, you know, should we be buying energy sector right now, or maybe technology sector, or, or you know, should we be looking international, or, you know, are, are we missing out if we're not getting in on crypto, or, you know, should we be expanding our real estate portfolio? And, and I'm not wanting to, to minimize the importance of human responsibility and wisdom, but I just want to acknowledge that it, it, it is, it's easy to sort of drift into this mentality that begins to operate in such a way that like blessing in life is going to come from financial gain. And Jesus says, that isn't going to bring blessing. As my 84-year-old neighbor would say, and I, I think this is pretty good, when you're 84, you have some wisdom to drop. He told me one time, he said, a lot of money can come at a high cost. I think like Yogi Berra couldn't have said it better himself right there. That's pretty deep. If we want a rich and full life, it doesn't come from you know, reading the Wall Street Journal and uh, finding out what Berkshire Hathaway is doing and Forbes magazine says. The blessed life comes from getting to know the Word of God and then obeying it. And Jesus is just wanting the crowds to know that it's his words, his teaching that are the very words of God. And, and the blessing doesn't come from heaping praise on him. Blessing doesn't even necessarily come from showing up on Sunday morning or, you know, coming on Wednesday night, joining a small group, or maybe uh, having a devotional thought land in your inbox every morning. Blessing comes from obedience from giving ear to his words and then doing what he says. And then Jesus, Jesus continues teaching in verse 29. He moves from a call to respond to his message to a, a pretty stern rebuke. We read this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. 
How about that? More people are coming, and then Jesus says something like this. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that if you're studying to become a speechwriter, this probably isn't one of the speeches you're going to look at, are you? I mean, rule number one has got to be don't insult your audience. But that's sort of exactly what Jesus does here. Is Jesus just having a bad day? Did he get up and make his way into the kitchen and discovered, like, you know, Peter had just taken the last of the, of the creamer. Or maybe, maybe, you know, Jesus is out and um, the strap on his favorite pair of sandals, it broke. And he's, he's just a little grumpy today. Is that what's going on here? I don't think that's the case. I think what's going on here is that Jesus, knowing time is short and what's at stake, I, I, I just... In, I see him wanting to jar many in the crowd out of complacency or maybe even like a hostility to him so that they might respond and, and, and they might save themselves from a trajectory that's otherwise going to lead to judgment. These are hard words from a loving Savior in hopes of causing them to reconsider their response to him. Now, I want you to notice with me why Jesus has such strong words for his audience. He says, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. So back in verse 14 of chapter 11, we're told that Jesus cast out a demon from a man. And then we read this. It says, um, if we can get that up there. And the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him, a sign from heaven. So the people living at this time, they have heard Jesus teaching, they've seen his miracles, and they're not satisfied with this. They said only, you know, maybe if we could get a little bit more, maybe something a little bit more spectacular, then we would believe. Jesus, maybe you could levitate. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus, you could kind of have like laser beams come out of your eyes, and you could cut those stones up, or Jesus, maybe you could do that like Jedi trick where, you know, that cup that's like five feet away, you could just make it go right to the palm of your hand. Can you do some of this stuff? Jesus says, no, not going to happen. He says, this generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So we see Jesus turns to Old Testament history as he, as he issues this warning. And first he brings up Jonah. And the point of the, of the comparison is the similarity in this relationship between Jonah and the Ninevites and Jesus and, and his generation, his contemporaries. The essence of Jonah's ministry to the Ninevites was his preaching concerning a coming judgment. God's sign to the Ninevites was this reluctant, xenophobic, grumpy prophet 
from a country that was 600 miles away who stood in their city and proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And as a result of this preaching, the Ninevites repented. And so likewise, Jesus now stands before this generation calling them to repentance. His preaching is the sign. Now, I should also mention it's possible that the sign of Jonah has a different meaning, or, or maybe it's a double meaning as the, these two views aren't mutually exclusive. There's this parallel passage in Matthew 12 where Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees who wanted to see a sign, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So we're tracking, it's almost the same. But then he goes on to add this. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so it's also possible in light of what we see in Matthew's gospel that the sign of Jonah should be understood as a reference to Jesus's, um, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And so in a way, Jesus is saying, you want a sign? No more signs except the ultimate sign, my resurrection. Uh, I'm thinking Luke wrote his gospel to be, to be a standalone document. And so I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think, because he doesn't mention the three days in his particular gospel, that when he's teaching to this audience on this day, his call to repentance, uh, what he was saying was that the, the sign of Jonah is just his teaching, that that should be sufficient for them to have a positive re- response. And maybe perhaps also at the same time, there's this deeper significance sort of for those who have ears to hear about how his... His, his resurrection uh, also correlates to the sign of Jonah. Well, there's a, there's a second historical figure that Jesus mentions, and that's the Queen of the South, which is a reference to the Queen of Sheba. Um, she's mentioned in 1 Kings 10 and then in, in 2 Chronicles 9. And Sheba was located in modern-day Yemen. And so um, if you were to travel from Israel to there by a camel or a horse and not by plane or in an air-conditioned Honda Odyssey on like an interstate. It really would have probably felt like the ends of the earth to make that trek. But she hears about Solomon, and she decides to, to investigate the claims, and she makes the arduous journey. And her response upon arriving is that Solomon's wisdom and his God are even more marvelous and magnificent than she was expecting. And Jesus announces to his audience that this Gentile woman will execute judgment on his generation. Because Jesus is the bearer of even greater wisdom than Solomon. And he's already right there in their midst. No travel required. And so if this queen would respond positively to Solomon, then they should definitely respond to him. And then Jesus makes a similar point uh, about the culpability of his generation by alluding once more to the Ninevites. Not only will the queen of Sheba judge this generation, but the Ninevites will as well because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And, and, And Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus's message is greater than Jonah's. So the people of Nineveh are gonna rise up at the final judgment, and they're going to condemn this generation. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, how does this 
teaching from Jesus apply to those of us who were living now, like 2,000 years after these events took place? What about those today who say it's irrational to believe in a God who doesn't reveal himself? Maybe like me, you've had a conversation with someone who has said something along these lines. If God wants me to believe in him, all he has to do is show up. Or maybe, um, maybe you're here, you've entertained thoughts similar to that one. You, you've said to yourself, if, if God would just let me know he is real with some sort of supernatural sign, I'd be happy to be his follower. I mean, didn't, didn't Gideon ask for a sign and God accommodated that request? Well, here's what I'd say. On a whole, Scripture takes a really negative view towards asking for a sign. And the reason seems to be that supernatural signs don't necessarily result in faith. Now, we saw that earlier in the chapter. The crowd has just seen Jesus drive out a demon. And rather than seeing this sign as a, as a validation, as confirmation, as an authentication of, of Jesus' deity, instead they reasoned some of the folks that, well, th this, this power must be derived from some kind of satanic force. You think about Pharaoh in the Old Testament. He saw some pretty spectacular signs, at least 10 of them, right? Did he believe? No. And, and what about the Israelites that were, were, were part of that? Um, they saw those same signs, and, and they even walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And what do we read about them? After, after witnessing these signs, they still doubt it, and they're still condemned for their lack of faith. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, I would think that's a pretty spectacular sign to see somebody come walking out with the linen strips covering themselves from head to toe. You figure everyone would have believed at this point, right? But we're told that wasn't the case. Some people went to the chief priests and the scribes, and they huddled together, and they concluded that this Jesus guy must go. In, in Acts 4, Peter healed a lame man. And the religious leaders, they got together and they, they even admitted that a, noble miracle had, a notable miracle had been performed, but they still continued in their unbelief. When the heart isn't right toward God, witnessing a miracle doesn't seem to solve the problem. It isn't an antidote. And so to the person living today who would say, you know, I, I am totally justified in my unbelief or in my agnosticism until I, I see some sort of sign like the ones Jesus supposedly performed while he was on this earth. I would say I, I, I'm not so certain of that. It seems to contradict what God is saying as he's revealing things to us. In Luke 16, Jesus tells this parable about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And um, the rich man ends up in Hades in this place of torment. And when he realizes that Lazarus can't come and uh, help him, aid him in some way, uh, cool off his, his tongue, he said, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, uh, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And do you remember what Abraham says? Now, this, is, this is Jesus putting the words in Abraham's mouth. But he says this, Father, 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is Jesus saying that miracles aren't the cure for unbelief. If we dismiss the scriptures, neither will we be convinced if we see someone rise from the dead. And the New Testament also teaches that that those of us living today aren't somehow less responsible because we live after Jesus' life, death, resurrection. When the Apostle Paul is speaking at the Oropagus in Athens, he made this clear. He said, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So those living in Athens obviously weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus' miracles. And yet Paul tells them, you're going to need to repent. You're still going to be held accountable to God. And you could be assured of this on the basis of a historical event, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This is what makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world. Christianity is grounded, it's anchored in a historical event. And it opens itself up to scrutiny. It, it says, here's how you can know that this is for real. You can, you can, this happened at a specific point in time in history. You can research this, you can investigate this, you can dig into this, you can try and substantiate this. It opens itself up. And so on the basis of this, I think it would be unwise to conclude that those, who, who, those of us who aren't eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry are somehow less responsible for a positive response to his teaching. Uh, now, having said that, I want to try and just walk a razor's edge here for a moment. There's a difference between asking for a sign because of unbelief and the person who tells Jesus, like the man in Mark 9, you might remember the man said this. He said, I believe help my unbelief. And it would seem that this was Gideon's situation. If you go back and you read the the account in Judges, he had a weak faith. And while God wasn't obligated to do anything, he graciously decided to meet Gideon where he was at uh, to help strengthen his faith. Similarly, in in John 1, uh, there's one of his disciples named Nathaniel that expresses some skepticism about whether Jesus was going to be the promised Messiah. And I think Jesus, just sensing some incipient faith in Nathaniel, he performs this small sign where he he demonstrates his omniscience to Nathaniel. And this this seemed to, to strengthen Nathaniel's faith. If you're earnestly seeking, there's this promise in James 4. It says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. That doesn't mean that God is obligated to perform some sort of sign. He isn't. But who am I to tell God that he can't, right? And, and so it, it's possible that God in his graciousness, he might choose to meet you where you're at and, and nurture you along. If on the other hand, your, your position, your posture toward God is essentially one of your arms folded and you say, all right, God, If you want me to believe, 
the responsibility is on you. Ball's in your court. You prove it to me. You, you, you show me a sign. I don't think God is very pleased with that request. I think God would say the, the proof is all around you if you have eyes to see. Just look up at the heavens or you know, consider creation itself. It declares my glory. Look at the waves or the beautiful sunset. Look at the glaciers. Look at sea turtles. Look at the autumn leaves. Look at the intricacy of the human eye. Look at a waterfall or the northern lights or a polar bear or a sequoia tree. Just take this stuff in. They make known my eternal power and divine nature. He'd also say, you have the scriptures. He'd say, what, what I have is sufficient to leave you without excuse. And, and no supernatural sign is going to overcome an unwillingness to believe. And some skeptics might say, well, okay, all right, scriptures, you want to talk about the scriptures? What about those that don't have the scriptures? And, and I, I get wanting to know something about God's character. But essentially what you're asking is, am I, am I putting my faith in a God who's just? And I, th I think if you're asking that question, here's how God would respond. We have to turn ahead to Luke 13. I'll let you go there after the service, but look at the first five verses. And, he, and here's, here's what I think Jesus would say. Don't dodge the question. He'd, he'd say, don't skirt the issue. I'm talking about me and you. Let's leave them aside for a moment. We, I, I say this because if you go to the end of John's gospel, Peter's having this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus tells Peter how he's going to live out his final days on this earth. You might remember this conversation. And, and Peter says, all right, Jesus, what about him? What about John? And you remember what Jesus tells to Peter? He says, what is that to you? You follow me. And so I think sometimes um, that, that's the conversation that, uh, that Jesus would want to have with you. If you're doubting, if you're a skeptic, and, and, and the, kind of the smoke screen you're putting up is, uh, well, what about the people who haven't heard? Jesus say, forget about them for a moment. Let's not talk about them right now. Let's talk about us. I, I realize that was a long excursus there, but um, since we're a church that's interested in reaching people, I, I, I thought it worth taking some time just to highlight Jesus' response um, to those who would ask for signs and sort of his position that the miracles aren't the cure for unbelief. After giving this warning... And Jesus employs several short parable-like utterances to drive the message home that we must make every effort to open ourselves to the light of his revelation. Pick up with me now in verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. The point here is that Jesus' teaching can be likened to a lamp. His message is is light, and it, and it gives guidance that enables everyone to see. But that light not only has to be lit, it has to be received by the eye in order for it to be helpful. And this is the point made in, in verses 34 to 36. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. So Jesus changes metaphors here, and he now likens one's eye to a lamp. And he says, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you 
be darkness. The point Jesus is making is that the eye is a lamp in the sense that it's a doorkeeper. Its, it's function is one of perception, right? That's how the eye works. And, and what gets lit into the body is what makes up a person. And so if you have a good eye, you'll see the light that Jesus offers. But if one's vision is clouded, they will miss that light. They'll be in a dark place. And Jesus is calling his audience to be full of light by receiving him and embracing his message. And then having previously warned everyone about the dangers of rejecting him, Jesus now shares the benefits of responding to him. He says, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It's a good image. If we take in his light, if we're illuminated by the light of Jesus, then we'll be healthy, we'll have guidance, we'll shine brightly, we'll, we'll, we'll give off light, reflecting the rays of God's truth to everyone else by the way that we live. Now, earlier in the week, I, I thought we'd make it all the way into the next section, that uh, we'd spend some time uh, at the end of chapter 11 as well, where more hard words are, are spoken by a, a loving Savior to the Pharisees. And um, I started working on that, and I, I got to thinking, boy, you know, in order to do justice to this, it, it's going to take a little bit more than five minutes. And um, I, I fear I was a bit overambitious. As much as I want to do what Paul says and declare the whole counsel of God, the, uh, the wise pastor is also aware of the wonderful servants of the Lord who are back in Noah's Ark. <laughs> and, and so um, we, will, we will save the end of chapter 11 for your small group discussions later this week and, and maybe table talk on Tuesday. And, and by way of closing, we can just reflect together on what Jesus has imparted in the passage that we've looked at. We've been reminded that blessing comes from responding in obedience to Jesus. And so I think the question we should ask ourselves is, there's any area of our life that's not aligned with his teaching? Is there any area where we've sort of dismissed or turned a deaf ear to his commands and we're just sort of telling ourselves that it's not that big of a deal to Jesus? You know, Jesus doesn't care what I do with my money or Jesus doesn't care what I do with my love life or what kind of shows I watch or how I treat my spouse. Hey, Jesus, Jesus knows that, you know, after I've had a hard day at work, it, Sometimes I need to come home and let off a little steam, and he's not going to come down that hard on me with my anger issues or if I choose to drink too much. But is that true? I mean, is, is that the sense that you get from reading this passage? I, I get the sense that Jesus desires 100% alignment in terms of our response to his teaching. Just like he told that woman. Yeah, yes, you know, it, it's good if you, if you come and you sing some songs about me. It's good if you hit the like button on Facebook when someone posts something spiritual. It's good if you leave here and, and put a 10 on the plate. But you know what's even better? Obedience. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in a bunch of fans. I want followers. 
I want people who are going to commit to be my apprentices. And to the person who'd say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure I'm ready to go all in on Jesus. Jesus would say that there's no such thing as being spiritually neutral. He'd say far more people in the past have responded positively to him with less revelation. And if we choose to reject Jesus, this isn't exactly popular in our contemporary culture. But twice in this passage, Jesus tells us that there's going to be a judgment. Kind of feel like maybe there's this unwritten rule in um, contemporary churches that, that want to reach people who, um, who might be unbelievers, who might be seekers. And that, the rule is, hey, we, you know, we don't talk about that. Like, uh, let's just try and keep things positive. But I, I feel like that would be a little bit of a pastoral malpractice. It'd be like going to see your physician for your annual checkup, and she asks you about your diet, and you say, oh, yeah, um, I only drink Red Bull, and um, I only eat bacon. That's it. I mean, wouldn't you think a good physician, wouldn't you think that she would kind of owe it to you to tell you that... Um, there's going to be some consequences if you, if you continue in that. And, and so in the same way, like I, I'm just wanting to let you know what Jesus says here. And so you have to ask yourself, do you want to be an object of judgment or do you want to receive grace and mercy on that day? The, the choice is one that we all have to make for ourselves. This isn't one that our spouse can make for us or our parents can make for us. This is one that's up to us. How we respond to the light that Jesus offers, that's what's going to determine our fate on Judgment Day. And Jesus is holding out his arms. He's inviting us to respond positively to the light that he brings, which is what will save us. And he says, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You know, it doesn't even matter how many times maybe you've heard a message like this and you've just kind of dismissed it or you've spurned his offer. Jesus is saying it's never, never too late. His arms are there and he wants us to respond. It says that his desire is that none will perish and that all will be saved. But we have to respond to him. And if you've never done that, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before you now. And I just, I think of where we're all at in our walk with you. And I pray that by your word, through your spirit, that you would be speaking to us. That you would be encouraging us where that's needed. Where you would be warning us where that's needed. Where you would be guiding us where guidance is needed. God, build us up. Edify us. Strengthen us. Nurture us. 
Shepherd us like the good shepherd you are. Lord, for the, the person who came here, not yet a believer, I thank you for the way that you've been at work in their life this morning through your word and by your spirit. And if you know that you've never embraced the light that Jesus offers and you want to do that now, you can just say a prayer like this. You can say, Jesus, I recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I am desperate for the salvation that you bring. I recognize that it's my sin. It's my choosing to disregard you and do what seems right to me that has separated me from you. And I thank you for bearing the consequences for my rebellion. And I believe in you now. I place my faith in you. I trust in you. And I thank you that you have clothed me with your righteousness and given me right standing. Fill me now with your spirit. And I want to live for you all of my days. And all God's people said, amen.